Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors podcast. And welcome back. Uh, This episode, we're going to be doing things a little bit different. Not we, me. I don't have my ever faithful companion evil with me this episode because of just holiday schedules and him working overnights. Um, But this week is a, we're getting back to the listener requests. So thank you, Megan, for your request that you placed here. This is definitely one of the most murderous ones, a very long one. So we're going to kind of jump into it. So maybe the witty banter from evil this week probably wouldn't be such a good thing because this is a doozy, an onion, sorry, onion of a case. Uh, And when I say onion, I mean it this time. I mean it every time though. So before I get into this, I found an amazing nine-page timeline in spreadsheet format from the Department of Psychology at Radford University in Radford, Virginia, which they're going to come up again. So the information on this uh, spreadsheet was researched by shoutouts to Amber Keene, George Lewis, Kara Stone, and Andrew Lucas. My hat's off to you for doing a great timeline and a layout of that timeline. Although uh, they don't give a multitude of, you know, details in each bullet point, this nine pages is very, very detailed. Uh, their dated bullet points are ma- uh, make for a good starting place for dates and names as this goes through. So, um, this killer, his name, I'm going to try to get it right. Uh, I almost said like Charles Lee Ray and it's like, didn't he kill MLK? But this guy's name is Charles Ray Hatcher. So this gentleman was nicknamed and I quote the one man crime wave. So one man crime wave. So Hatcher would definitely live up to that name. However, um, this criminal turned serial killer Yes, criminal turned serial killer. Didn't start out that way. Uh, He wouldn't begin his serial killer days until the ripe age of 40, which by average standards is late in the game to begin serial killing. Many many serial killers are at least 10 years into the game by the time they turn 40. So, of course, we're going to go back to the Radford University. So, according to the Serial Killer Information Center, started by Dr. Mike Amott, I hope I pronounced that. If not, I'll just Dr. Mike. He's a professor of psychology at Radford University. Um, The Information Center was started in 1992 and was quote, created to provide students, researchers, and, oop, my cat just sneezed, and the media with accurate data on serial killers, end quote. Uh, As cases are solved and new killers evolve, information is constantly uploaded and updated to this project. They get their information from a multitude of sources, uh, from prison records, media, court documents, Uh, true crime books and of course the internet where we all get our information nowadays pretty much Uh, according to the serial killer information center male serial killers begin killing at the average age of 27 so keep that in mind that someone may start at 21 22 and somebody else might start at 30 so that kind of brings us to the middle of 27 and I did look and they do have women's statistics Um, according to that information center female serial killers begin killing at the average age of 31 so maybe we put a little more thought and methodicalness to it that's why we kind of start a few years after the dudes but anyway without further ado We are going to start, it is Mound City, Missouri, 1929. Uh, I've done some rural exploration up that way, and it's kind of a whole lot of nothing. Some country houses, some abandoned stuff, mostly just highway. It's north of St. Joe, and his parents are Jesse and Lula Hatcher. And he was born, uh, he had three brothers, older, 
there's Arthur, Jesse Jr., and Floyd. So uh, Jesse Sr. was an abusive father, a bootlegger, and an alcoholic. So it sounds like he was getting high off his own supply there. So he's being abused at home. He's got a raging alcoholic of a dad. And of course, his school years aren't much better. He goes to school. He gets bullied there. But whenever the chance for the tables to turn happens and he gets a chance to bully a kid, he definitely does take that. He does become a bully. Kind of, I feel like when a bully bullies somebody, obviously, um, it's just kind of a projection of their home life, something unhappy with them, but we all know that. So it's 1935. It's, uh, he is six years old when, uh, Charles, I kind of want to call him Hatcher, but we're talking about both of the brothers here. Uh, he's out with his older brother, Arthur, and they were out flying kites when it touches a power line and Arthur is electrocuted and dies immediately. So after that life event that was very detrimental for a six-year-old to see, his parents divorce a short time later. His dad fucking takes off, but from the sounds of his dad, it sounds like he's doing him a favor by taking off. I mean, yes, we all need a father figure in our life, but not one that's going to beat the shit out of us. So it's 1945. He's 16 years old. His mom's gone through a couple marriages, but they... His mom, him, and her third husband all moved to St. Joe, and this is when his life of crime would kind of start. So, um, in late September, early October of 1947, he's now 18, he ends up, this is kind of funny, he ends up getting a job with the Iowa-Missouri Walnut Company. He's been there a couple weeks. He gets drunk on the job and steals a logging truck. I don't know if there were logs on the back or if he just took the truck. Um, he did bring it back the next day, but he was convicted of auto theft. He's given a two-year sentence, but it's suspended. So something I'm going to be saying quite a bit is just a few months later or a short time later or the next day, because this guy operates very quickly these criminal impulses he just can't control it and he's doing shit constantly like i said before when we got into this nine pages so without further ado it's february 1948 he's now working at the saint francis hotel which i did look up and the building is still there it's no longer a hotel i'm not sure exactly when it stopped being one but it's now like an office building with law offices in it mostly law offices from what i saw and it still kind of looks the same as it did well it's the 40s he's a dishwasher and he also helps out with other jobs around the hotel so while we're working there, he steals another vehicle, although this time it's a lot smaller. It's just a 1937 Buick. Well, he's on the suspended sentence. It's just a few months later. Um, he's sentenced because basically he violated probation. He's sentenced to two years at the Missouri State Pen. Um, that's heavy. I took the tour there. It quit being a prison uh, a few years back, like I want to say 2004, don't quote me on that year though, uh, and they built a newer, bigger, better facility, and now they offer tours of the Missouri State Pen down in Jeff City, Missouri. If you're ever there, I highly recommend the tour, and I hope that you get Tom and Maggie as your tour guides, because they used to work there when it was an active prison. So, of course, they're not just reading some rehashed script of what this building used to do. They lived it. So, um, yeah, one hell of a tour. Totally worth the price of admission. Check it out if you get a chance. Moving on. So, not even a year later, it's June 1949. Hatcher is released from prison. Um, just a few months later in October of 1949, he forges a $10 check at a gas station, um, which gets him back in the Missouri state pen three years. He's looking at this time. So a year and a half into that three year sentence, it's March, 1951. He escapes from the Missouri state pen, which 
to be honest with you, I read that and I was very curious as to how he did that because the walls there, they're no joke. Um, but I guess never underestimate a man's will to be free. So while out on the lam, he attempted a burglary. Um, I looked into, uh, to find the details of what he tried to burglarize, but I couldn't from just a general search. Uh, there's a lot of archive newspapers, but the Kansas city star, they want you to pay for their archive papers, which I get you're in newspaper business for a profit, not to just, well, I guess it, I thought it was to report the news, but whatever. Um, so, um, what we know for free, we just know he got two years for escaping an additional two years for escaping an attempted burglary. Uh, it's now July, 1954. He's 24 years old and he's released from prison. Um, he makes it a few months to February 1955, and he's old uh, to his old shenanigans. Uh, he's in Oric, Missouri this time, which is just outside Richmond, uh, and decides to steal a 1951 Ford. He's arrested for auto theft and given four years. While serving his sentence, he tries escaping again, and he gets an additional two years for his futile attempt. So he's just racking up the years. He's racking up the charges. Four years down the road, it's March 1959. He's now 29 and released. It's after this, I guess, for check forgery and stealing cars isn't enough because now he's stepping it up to violent crimes against people. So it's March. Now it's June. He's living back in St. Joe, and Hatcher attempts to kidnap a 16-year-old boy that was out delivering newspapers. He rolls up on the paper boy and threatens him with a knife. The boy thankfully survives and reports the crime. The police find him, and guess what? A stolen car. Uh, November of 1959, under the Habitual Criminal Act, he is sentenced to five years for the attempted kidnapping and stealing another car. That seems kind of light for an attempted kidnapping. Anyway, he is sentenced to the Missouri State Pen again, and while waiting for transfer from Buchanan County, where Oric is, um, anyway, to the Missouri State Pen, that's a good four hours away, uh, he makes another attempt at breaking out of jail. After his, uh, his transfer back to the state pen, he starts calling himself, and this is his moniker, and this is an exact quote, the most notorious criminal in Northwest Missouri since Jesse James. So, Jesse James. You know what else happened to Jesse James? He was shot in the back, so, or just shot and killed in general. So, probably, maybe not the best moniker, well, while he's in prison, it's July 1961, and there's, okay, this is where I kind of pick up their timeline. Uh, before, it was just kind of my notes, but I really kind of ran out of time, and I didn't have time to really just read through these nine pages with the holiday schedule, and I'm not going to lie, I was binge-watching The Sopranos. It's something I do every December, but anyway, I'm going to kind of just read as they lay out this timeline. It's July 1961 and Jerry Therrington, a fellow inmate of Hatcher's at the penitentiary, was found raped and stabbed to death on the prison's kitchen loading dock. And of course, all the kitchen crew is brought out. Guess what? Hatcher ain't there. So they're automatically suspicious of him and he is sent to uh, solitary confinement for Therrington's murder, uh, but there doesn't seem to be enough evidence to convict him, and he just spends months in the hole, um, quite a few months in the hole. So here it says uh, he's in August of 61, he was sentenced to solitary confinement. This brings us to January, so five months, Ooh, still in solitary confinement for the murder. He sends a note to the major at the penitentiary claiming that he realized he needs psychological treatment. However, the prison psychologist felt it was all a scheme to get out of this and get out of prison early. So they're like, nope, 
we ain't giving you no treatment. Um, wow. I guess good, but, you know, what happens if he really did need the treatment? And they're like, hell no. So they're just picking at that scab. It's now October 1962. He's finally, good grief, It he spent from August of 61 to October of 62. So a year and a few months, he's returned to general population at the prison and his sentence is reduced by three-fourths of the original time. Um, I guess doing over a year in solitary confinement will get you a reduction in time. <laughs> um, not even uh, a year later, it's August 1963, Hatcher is 34 years old when he is released from the penitentiary. During the timeline skips like six years here, so we go from 63 to 69. At some point during those years, uh, he makes his way out to California. God knows how many people he killed and buried along the way between Missouri and California because there are quite a few states between. <laughs> so... It's August of 1969. He's out in California, and Hatcher confesses to abducting a boy in Antioch, California. The boy was riding down the street on his bicycle, and he told the boy, come take a ride with me. Hatcher drove him down to the creek and strangled the boy with his hands. So, um, it sounds like he killed him. Um, I'm sorry if that sounded... There's some people he, like, strangles and assaults, but he doesn't quite kill them. So, um, we're just going to assume that the boy on the bicycle was murdered. Well, it's two days later from that, he, a six-year-old Hispanic boy was reported missing in San Francisco. The boy had last been seen walking away with a man that offered him ice cream. Um from a six-year-old girl that was playing with the boy. The boy was found by a man walking his dog uh, in the middle of a sexual assault and beating. So, wow, this dude, like, rolled up on this kid getting hurt. Thank God that, you know, he was there to stop it. Police arrive in time and arrest the man who wouldn't answer any questions except for what his name is. He just kept saying Albert Ralph Price. But when they check his ID... His ID says Hobart Prater. I have to say these names slow or I'm just going to be like messing it all up and just, yeah. So the boy survives the horrifying assault and the FBI, they get his fingerprints and realize that Albert Ralph Price and Hobart Prater are Charles Ray Hatcher. So a couple weeks later, September 12th, 1969, he's still going by the name of Albert Price. He's, you know, he's going to die on that hill, I guess. Uh, he's brought before a judge uh, for the charges uh, of assault with attempt to commit sodomy and kidnapping. They order psychiatric evaluations immediately to determine if he's competent to stand trial or not. Two weeks later, um, a complete mental evaluation during a 90-day stay at the California State Hospital was ordered after Hatcher was completely unresponsive during the preliminary evaluations. Uh, this is the first time that he, you know, starts faking out these mental evaluations to getting out of going back to prison. I guess a year in the hole will do that to you. He also... Um, he, he ups the game by saying, like, he's hearing voices, he's seeing shit, uh, he's, like, trying to commit suicide a few times. Um, in December of 1970, uh, he was repeatedly sent back to the courts from the California State Hospital where he was sentenced. Uh, the psychologists are saying that he is competent to stand trial. Uh, one psychiatrist at the hospital even identified him as having a passive aggressive personality with sexual deviation and pedophilia damn right so it was also reported that staff felt hatcher was malingering uh the hospital uh, malingering uh yeah that's just a sentence they threw in the middle of that of course uh, the hospital decided once again that he was competent to stand trial, and once again the judge ordered two more evaluations. 
Um, so it's January of 1971, and the first psychiatrist of these evaluations concluded that Hatcher was insane and recommended vigorous treatment in a secure hospital. Um, that sounds like electroshock therapy to me, um, which he t solely deserves. So the next day, January 22nd, the second psychiatrist who refers to Mr. Hatcher as Mr. Prince concluded that he was incompetent to stand trial and he should be sent back to the hospital. Why he referred to him as Mr. Prince, I'm thinking it's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde, like he is this vicious murderer pedophile, but he puts on that, like a sociopath, that charming exterior that just, yeah, is charismatic. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's just my guess of how that name came to fruition. So it's May 1971, and Hatcher was sent to trial and pled not guilty by reason of insanity. <sighs> Again, he is sent for more evaluations, this time at a different hospital, and it was concluded that he could not stand trial. Three days later, uh, the actual examination took place with both Hatcher and um, this Dr. Carl Drake Jr. Uh, of course, he's lying about his whole life history to the doctor, which just kind of throws in an element of falsehoods with this um, information that they are collecting about serial killers um, so basically it's kind of just falsifying information and in how they were viewing um, repeat offenders at the time, serial killers too. So in June of 1971, <laughs> at the age of 41, he escapes from the hospital and he's caught a week later, 90 miles away in Calusa, California. He's arrested under the suspicion of auto theft no big surprise there. And he's going this time by the name of Richard Lee Grady. So he's got a thing for these three name names. So July 15th, he is returned to the California State Hospital for an evaluation of a, <clears throat> pardon, mental disorder where he was recognized by staff. So of course he gets there and they're like, Richard Lee Grady, this motherfucker is Charles Ray Hatcher. He, Richard Lee Grady, get out of here. So April 4th of the following year, 1972, after finally deciding that Hatcher's treatment was going nowhere and that he was an endanger to other patients, he sent to the prison state hospital in Vacaville. Well, while there, it's August, 1972, Hatcher was transferred to San Quentin prison where he would finally, where he would be forced to trial three years after that crime. So he's doing, I guess the state hospitals just aren't buying his shit. He's now doing three years in San Quentin. Good. October of 1972, it was determined that he was capable of rational thinking based on a letter he wrote to his public defender. Hatcher was ordered two final examinations. Man, I wish like the mental health resources for the outside world was as good as it seems to be for this guy. So one would determine that he was competent to stand trial and the other one would determine that he was sane at the time of the crime. So sounds like it's going to be a nail in the coffin. Will it be? Probably not. So now it's December of 1972, Hatcher uh, was finally tried for the abduction and the molestation of the Hispanic boy. He is convicted, thank goodness. Um, he was committed, co he was convicted, but he was committed to the California State Hospital as a mentally disordered sexual offender. So a couple months down the road from that com him being committed to the hospital, it's around 5 p.m. Uh, March 28th. The security guards found Hatcher hiding in a cooler near the main courtyard of the hospital. There were two sheets. <laughs> wow. There were two sheets stuffed in his pants and he totally fesses up that he's trying to escape. 
The doctors still feel like he's a threat to society, so he is sent back to court for sentencing for the attempted escape. Um, sheets in the pants. All right. So he's sent back to court. Then in April of that same year, 1973, he is sent to a minimum security prison in Vacaville with a sentence of one year to life. That's a very broad spectrum of time there. That's like the cable guy telling you, I'll be there between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Yeah, got to narrow that down somewhat. So it's May of 1973, and the psychologist W.D. Lewis interviewed Hatcher at the reception center and found him to be, and this is a direct quote, manipulative, institutionalized sociopath. I have to say that slower. It's going to come out like a hot mess. That sounds, that's heavy. He's manipulative. He's been, you know, wow. So in June of that year, Hatcher was recommended for transfer to a maximum security prison. He attempts suicide again by trying to slash his wrists uh, so he wouldn't be sent to the prison. The psychiatrist concluded that he had paranoid schizophrenia, which actually this diagnosis keeps him from going to a maximum security prison, and he remains at the minimum security prison in Vacaville, where he was sent after the mental institution. Keeping this guy's prison record, like, I was going to keep track of, like, how many times he's been in and out of prison. Yeah, nine pages. Fuck that. So, um... Let's see, it's June of 1976, and the California Parole Board found that Hatcher had improved dramatically through his time in prison, which was only two years uh, and a few months and all that. Uh, the talk of parole began, and after continued treatment and rehabilitation, a parole date was set for Christmas Day of 1978. So he's got like a year and a half left. He thinks he's on easy street. It's January 1977, so seven months later, Hatcher receives a modified parole date that l led him to be released 19 months earlier than expected. A bill had just been passed that would give credit to inmates for time spent not only in jails, but in mental health facilities. That just doesn't sound right. Like, I can see you had a bad day. Maybe you kind of did like Brittany, you, you know, you vandalize a car a little bit, shave your head, kind of have a fucking moment. I can see somebody like that being, you know, excused like, hey, you did your time. You fucked this car up. No big deal. But a pedophile murder institutionalized sociopath, that just doesn't sound like it sounds like a recipe for disaster, which it is. So now it's May of 1977 and Hatcher is released to Home Care Service Center, a halfway house in San Francisco. Five days after being released, Hatcher was supposed to report back to the halfway house at 9 p.m. like every night to take his medication and of course turn in for the night. He of course violates the terms of his parole and he was on the run and he is to be considered a walkaway. Um, it's about two weeks later and he's declared a parolee at large and besides a sighting in Wilmar, Minnesota, he was not seen for about a year. Once again, there's this time gap and many states in between. So now we've gone from Missouri to California, from California to where Wilmar, Minnesota. Um, so once again, who knows what he did in between and how many bodies are buried along the way. Which brings us to, at some point between June of 77 and the sighting in Wilmar and May 27th of 1978, so almost a year later, um, he makes his way back to St. Joe. Um, he's 48 at the time, and Eric... Christian, I hope I said that last name right, but he's four years old and he was abducted and murdered in St. Joe. Um, September, so just 
another big break in time from May to September. Hatcher makes his way to Omaha and he's arrested up there for sexually attacking a 16-year-old boy. Um, he gets really busy between 1978 and 1982 and we're, yeah, onion. We about to peel the onion so it's January 31st, 1979. He's released from Douglas County Mental Hospital in Omaha. I guess that's, you know, where he, oh yes, I'm sorry. I skipped this box. Uh, in the fall of 78, so I'm guessing just shortly after the attack on the boy in Omaha, he was arrested. Um, okay, so then let's see, fall of 78, January 79. So he's only in there for... A few months, not even a few months. He's released from the Douglas County Mental Hospital in Omaha, where he had been for the sexual attack in 1978. He had been arrested under the name of Richard Clark now, and records indicate that he may have never been identified as Hatcher because nobody there took his fingerprints or bothered to, you know, look further into it. So, um, two weeks later in February, um, a man named Melvin Reynolds was falsely accused and convicted to life in prison for Eric Christian's murder, which was committed by Hatcher. Um, and one thing I did read about this, I didn't read too much into Melvin because it's its own little category, is um, he apparently had homosexual tendencies. And you got to think, this is small town St. Joe, Missouri, 1979. Um, yeah, him having those tendencies just made him all the more of a scapegoat for the attack on this four-year-old little boy. So, um, that's very unfortunate that Marvin Reynolds got pigeonholed that way. So that brings us to May of 1979. Hatcher was arrested again in Omaha for assaulting and attempting to kill a seven-year-old boy. Um, charges were dropped, but he was sent to another mental health facility. Well, a couple weeks later, he was released, uh, only to return two months later for another assault. Does this guy ever get tired? I would think that this is just, wow. So September of 1980, he escapes from the Norfolk Regional Center, um, and then in October, he is arrested under the name of Richard Clark in Lincoln. So he makes it from Omaha to Lincoln. Uh, he's arrested up there for an attempted uh, assault and sodomy of a 17-year-old male. He was discharged from the mental health facility uh, that he was sent to only 21 days later. So, um, yeah, it seems like a lot of people are dropping the ball on this. But once again, you know, this is 1979, 1980. We don't have the linked up databases and codex and all that shit that we have today that really helps states and federal uh, entities kind of stay connected. Um, I really hope it's like that. You hear about it on crime shows and stuff. But anyway, it's October of 1980 and he's arrested. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I already read that. We're going back in time. So anyway, we get to uh, January of 1981, and he's arrested again under the name of Richard Clark, but this time in Des Moines, Iowa. Wow, from Lincoln to Des Moines, that's, that's some serious hours. Uh, he was arrested up there uh, after a knife fight. He spends a short amount of time in various Iowa mental, uh, mental health facilities. Um, and then just a few months later in April of 1981, at the age of 51, Hatcher was discharged to a Salvation Army Center in Davenport, Iowa. I think that's one of the Quad Cities. So in June of 1981, so just, uh, a month and a few days after he's released to this uh, Ar Salvation Army Center, James Churchill uh, was stabbed to death on the banks of the Mississippi River near the uh, near Rock Island, Illinois. Hatcher eventually confessed that Churchill and he had been drinking heavily, and he said he had this uh, impulse uh, to kill growing inside of him. He stabbed Churchill until the knife became embedded in the 
bone in uh, right of his chest near his heart, and he only stabbed him about 12 times. Um, I'd say he only stabbed him. i say he, if had the knife not get embedded, he probably would have gone for a lot more. So in July 16th, 1981, he's arrested in Bittendorf, Iowa. Okay, uh, one of the pictures for my visual aids that I'll post on my Facebook and Instagram is the mugshot of him in Bittendorf, Iowa, and he just looks like a miserable fuck. He is just this curmudgeoned old man. I mean, he's only 52, but he looks like a curmudgeoned old man that never smiled a day in his life. But anyway, he is arrested for attempting to abduct an 11-year-old boy from a grocery store. The boy was able to run and police arrest, arrested Hatcher, and he was still going by the name of Richard Clark. Um, and then, uh, let's see, almost a year later, in March of 1982, charges were dropped, but Hatcher was sent to another mental hospital in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, on an involuntary commitment so it's probably a good thing that it was involuntary that way he couldn't check himself out after like a day or two but don't worry after 49 days he was released so uh, I don't know what they did in 49 days but it didn't help so now it's July of 1982 and a he's back in St. Joe a young woman was accosted by a strange man in a downtown shopping mall in St. Joe. He wanted to take her for a cup of coffee and go for a walk. This woman was <laughs> rightfully so frightened by him and was like, told him, leave me alone. The encounter took place only a half block down from where Eric Christian was abducted four years earlier. So now we have like a like a five mile radius of a couple of abduction. Well, one abduction, one attempted. The next day, July twenty eighth, Hatcher abducts a ten year old boy. The abduction took place outside huh, a mall in St. Joe, Missouri. I'll tell you, there's only one mall. That town ain't that big. The boy had been browsing in a record shop when he rolled up on him, grabbed him by the shoulder, and was like, I'm a security guard. Come with me. The boy got away from Hatcher and found his grandmother, thank God, and uh, the security guard um, escaped before police could arrive. Uh, the next day in the St. Joseph Gazette, July 29, 1982, there was a brief report on the attempted abduction of the boy. That same day that that story came out, Michelle Steele, 11-year-old girl, was abducted and murdered. Good grief. Um, he, he just, there's no break in this. Um, anyway, she was going to a dentist appointment in downtown St. Joe. When she went to her dentist appointment, which was at 1030, she left about an hour later. When her mother returned home at 315, she noticed her daughter wasn't there. Red flags go up. She, of course, calls police. The next day, search party is out. It's July 30th. The uncle of the missing girl, his name's Roy Montgomery, he was continuing to search when he noticed something between something white between two logs. And it was Michelle's lifeless body laying there. Um, and it was actually found less than a mile downstream from where Eric Christian's body was found uh, like four years earlier or something like that, four or five. Uh, the same day that Michelle's body is discovered, Hatcher voluntarily checks himself into the St. Joe State Hospital under the name still of Richard Clark, and he claims he is hearing voices. So just like four days later, it's August 3rd, 1982, Richard Clark slash Hatcher was charged with the first degree murder of Michelle Steele, and the bond was set for a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, Hatcher had been identified by the police as the man they seen by the river as well. He was picked out of photo lineup by, uh, by the attempted abductees earlier, a couple days earlier. Uh, sufficient evidence had been found. Um, they had his knapsack. They had matching teeth marks. They had shoe imprints. They had it all. 
So 10 days later, August 13th, he receives his first mental uh, examination in this case. And it was concluded, once again, he could understand his charges and he did not need to be sent to another mental institution. In September, uh, he pled not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect and the court orders a second examination. Excuse me, need to take a sip here. Anyway, it's a couple months later, December 1982. He's 53 years old. And during this examination, <laughs> wow, I thought this was shit that only happened like with FBI people and movies, but he is injected with a truth serum. In questioning, Hatcher claimed that he heard voices and demons told him to, quote, sacrifice the maiden. So, sacrifice the maiden. The doctors believed that these were simply excuses and he was just trying to justify his violence in his own mind. Um, just four days later, December 6th, uh, a trial date was uh, set but was missed due to his lack of competence to stand trial. So psychologists are saying this guy is there, he can stand trial, he understands, but his actions, an act I, we all think, um, is just proving differently. So he sits in the can for a while until April of 1983 when he was ruled competent to stand trial for the first degree murder uh, of Michelle and he gets a new trial for June. Um, he was spending time, May, uh, spending time in Buchanan County Jail awaiting his trial. He gave a scrap of paper to a deputy that says, and I quote, Please call the FBI and tell them I would like to see them today. Very important case, end quote. Um, FBI sends down agent Joe Halstag and um, Hatcher gives him a map that directs him to the body of James Churchill. He didn't admit to killing him, so it was just assumed he was doing this for some notoriety, you know, numbers to under his belt. He told Halstag that there were 16 bodies, 13 of them adults, and all were male. Um, the agent got his first pieces of information that would lead to the discovery that the wrong man was in jail for the murder of Christian uh, Eric Christian. During this interview, it became clear that Hatcher would trade details about the murder for the death penalty. And yes, I read that right. He was going to give them details he wanted the death penalty. He wanted to be put to death. And that just only, for me, that solidifies that his previous suicide attempts were nothing but fakes. If he wanted to be put to death, I understand maybe there's some religious aspect of it that comes into play for some people. But if he really wanted to die, he would have done the job himself or just, yeah, or maybe, you know, like suicide by cop. I mean, they didn't know that then, call it that then. But like he, he could have, when got arrested, you know, fucking resisted, beat up a cop, got shot. Now he's dead. So they find out um, when he is finally charged in March of 1983, uh, he, they list his aliases and the fact that he used six social security numbers over his career. And once again, early 80s, you could get away with all that kind of fraud because they just didn't have the technology and information services that we have today. So he was, uh, his listed aliases were, there's a couple of these that throw me off, but Richard Martin Clark, Richard Harris, Richard Mark Clark, Richard Lee Grady, Richard Lee Price, uh, Albert Eyre, Charles Marvin Tidwell, Hobart Prater, Ronald Springer. Okay, this is the one that, the two that gets me, Doris Mullins and Doris, Doris Mullins Travis. Was he like perpetrating as a woman? Is Doris a man's name? Like one of those old fashioned names that I just, I always thought of Doris as a woman. Uh, there's a couple other names. We won't get into that, but yeah, the whole Doris Mullins, it's like, 
Okay. Or maybe he just used her social security number when doing, I don't know, check forgery. So, uh, this brings us to June of 1983. Hatcher, uh, after Hatcher's cell was searched by officers, um, he, they searched his cell because, uh, he told Holstag that he had flushed his diary of murders. Um, anyway, uh, he gets a change of venue for his trial. Uh, he finally, in July of 83, writes a detailed account containing evidence no one else would know about the Christian case. Um, and he gives this letter to this FBI agent in July. Um, and then, in August of 1983, Hatcher confessed to the murder of James Churchill in 1981 and William Freeman way back in 1969. During the same interview, he was questioned by other detectives about the killing of Eric Christian. Um, by the end of the interview, Hatcher had filled out a timeline of his career uh, from October 1947, arrested for auto theft, to his uh to july 29th 1982 when he was arrested for michelle michelle Steele's murder Uh, a few days later september 1st the grand jury met and felt they had enough evidence to indict hatcher on capital murder for michelle Steele. five days later Hatcher was indicted by Buchanan County Grand Jury on capital murder, and he was arraigned the next day. September 12th, he pleads not guilty. Um, October 13th, Hatcher was sentenced to life in prison in the Missouri State Pen for the murder of Eric Christian. And Melvin Reynolds, the man currently served, was released the next day. Thank goodness that they rectified that. He didn't spend... 43 years in prison like some people he was released fairly early um in january of 1984 the trial for michelle Steele's murder was about to start but his attorneys uh hatcher's attorneys had enough of his client's abuse and dropped the case so apparently he wasn't very nice to the people who were trying to get him off a capital murder so they moved the trial to Warrensburg, Kansas, and it lasted five days, 12 hours a day. It went from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. A jury of eight men and four women were picked on the first day. September 22, 1984, Hatcher was convicted of capital murder in the Michelle Steele case, and it took jury less than an hour to return and recommend Hatcher be sentenced to life without the possibility of probation or parole. Usually you just hear the possibility of parole for 50 years. In November of 1984, Hallstag met with Hatcher for the last time uh, for an interview. In um, December of 1984, Hatcher appeared before the court again on a motion for a new trial, and of course, that was denied good. I mean, I understand we all are entitled to due process of law. Oof. This guy takes that to the limit. So in December of 1984, it's just four days later from his motion being denied, um, officers made their routine schedule and shined a light in Hatcher's cell and found him hanged in his cell. He was hanged by a piece of electrical wire that had been tied to the brace of a heavy metal ventilation grate on his cell. The knot in the wire was located beneath his right ear hatcher's hands had been tied behind his back with a piece of shoelace officers tried to revive him but he was already dead so i guess he finally made good on those uh attempted suicides um in on december 11th 1984 at the age of 55 um, a group of volunteers carried a fiberboard box containing Hatcher's remains to the prison cemetery to be bored, uh, to be buried. Uh, his brother refused to have anything to do with the service or him himself. So the timeline finally ends in 1984 with 
him killing himself. I guess he did get the death sentence. It just didn't get taken out by the state or the federal government or anything of that sort. So this was pretty heavy. You know, he killed 16 people. Um, he was only, you know, convicted of two of them, but, um, I, I'm glad that Michelle Steele's family got, you know, their perpetrator. He did get some justice, although he did take the coward's way out and Eric Christians as well. I'm glad that the other guy was exonerated of those heinous charges. I hope that he went on to live a normal life somewhere, probably not in this, in St. Joe, cause you know how sometimes a stigma gets on you and it just stays on you. So, um, I appreciate you listening along. Um, I didn't have the witty banter of my ever faithful sidekick evil. However, this timeline was just so long and so many people killed and abducted and assaulted that I really thought that we were just going to take this to the limit of over an hour, really. Uh, I'm glad we squeezed this in under an hour. Um, next week, we will return with, uh, I'm not sure what case I want to do. I don't have any listener requests at this point. Um, so we'll probably just pull something off the list. One of my favorite kind of, you know, whodunits, an onion, if you want to call it that. And um, anyway, you can follow along at Housewife of Horrors at, uh, on Facebook and or Instagram where I do post visual aids because if you're anything like me, I personally like faces to names. You can hear about these people all day, but it really makes a difference when you get to see the house or the people, the, you know, the crime scenes, when you get to see that, it just really, it adds a realism to it that I personally like with my stories, um, with these cases, not necessarily stories, but anyway, uh, thank you again for listening along, follow along, um, at, uh, Instagram and or Facebook. And, uh, will we, uh, we will be returning next week, hopefully with evil. His schedule doesn't go back till after the holidays. So I might be winging it again. Maybe we can get charming, charming Amy or somebody else, somebody, uh, cause I feel like, I just didn't have, this wasn't really funny, but there was just no banter. Um, anyway, thank you for listening along and I'll stop rambling now and, uh, you all stay safe out there and have a good holiday season.